Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, Dick Beauvais will give his assessment of the Senate bank hearings this week in Washington on the banking crisis and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. He'll describe what it may signal for the banking industry with calls in Washington for investigations, tighter regulatory standards and penalties and punishments for some bankers. Beauvais sees the likelihood of change in how banks are operating with constraints on their lending and stepped up capital requirements across the sector. There are also likely to be changes afoot on the size and scale of audits and distress tests on banks. Who was to blame for the collapse of SVB and the events that led to a series of other bank failures? Was there questionable activity at the highest levels? We look at all that. Matt Van Alstein will sound a warning about America's Minsky moment, the end stage of an extended phase of economic prosperity that propels investors and consumers to take on excessive risk, leading ultimately to a financial and economic disaster. We look at whether America today is now hurtling fast in that direction. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon co-founder and managing partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 62. SVB is back in the news again, but this time for, I suppose, a different reason, Dick. We had the Senate hearings today, which you had been following uh, very closely, and uh, there were many questions asked. And of course, First Citizens Bank has agreed to buy Silicon Valley Bank, which had been taken over by the FDIC just over two weeks ago. Tell us about the hearings today. What came out of them? Any surprises? Well, I mean, I think uh, there, were, there were no real surprises. Uh, yeah, a few things which I can mention, which was a little bit surprising to me. But uh, I guess the biggest surprise was the uh, the, the uh, intensity in which the senators felt that uh, something wrong had happened, uh, both in government uh, and at, at the bank. And they seemed to be more focused on what went wrong in government than what went wrong in the bank. Um I, I don't know if these numbers are true, but senators mentioned them. They said that uh, you know a few a few days before the company went uh, was taken over by the FDIC, that the insiders were selling stock as if they knew that was going to happen, selling their stock in the bank. Secondly, apparently they borrowed uh, over two hundred million dollars from the bank, 
Uh, and thirdly, they started giving huge bonuses to all the employees. So they were taking large you know, amounts of money out of the bank before the government took it over, presumably in the expectation that the government was going to take it over. That, that was surprising. And, and it gives you an idea of how angry uh, the, the senators are over what happened there. The second thing, which I think is, uh, you know, you might call a surprise, is that for, you know, over two years, the uh, bank regulators or auditors who go in and look at the bank had discovered, you know, irregularities, and they had rated the bank management what is called a three. A three is a very low rating for a bank management. And they rated the bank holding company uh, even lower, as I understand it. And they went to the bank and said, look, you're doing this, this, and this wrong. And the bank did nothing about it. So they went back a year later and they said, you're doing this, this, and this wrong. And the bank did nothing about it. So they went back a year after that. Same story. You're doing all this stuff wrong. And the bank didn't do anything about it. But what was really infuriating for a number of the senators is the government didn't do anything about it. The government, you know, the Federal Reserve and the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation saw that the bank was doing something wrong, characterized what it was, went to the bank and said, fix it. The bank ignored them, and the, the regulators did not use their powers to penalize the banks, shut it down, or do things that would force it to change its way. And I think that was very, very upsetting to the senators. And so they spent more time, one, if they all agreed that there was something wrong with the regulators. But number two, they spent a lot of time arguing as to whose fault it was. The Republicans said it was the Democrats' fault because all of the regulators now are Democrats because Biden is president. And the Democrats argued it was the Republicans' fault because in 2018 and 19 under Trump, uh, a lot of the bank regulations were eliminated. Uh, in this argument, I happen to agree with the Republicans because the laws were there. They didn't need, you know, more laws. All they needed to do was execute on the laws that already existed, and they didn't do it. And and that's going to be the big question that has to be answered by May 1st by the, the, the Federal Reserve. So there was a whole gallery of regulators there, very important people, um, including the Fed Reserve Vice Chair for Supervision, Michael Barr, the Chairman of the FDIC, the Treasury Undersecretary, um, for domestic finance and a few others so senator john kennedy of louisiana asked why the fed didn't stress test svb did he make a fair point yeah no he's he's a really smart guy i mean i've listened to uh you know I, obviously i've listened to a number of uh, hearings and um he, he's got this he's a louisiana he comes from louisiana he's got this uh you know old boy you know style you know he's, he comes out with drawl state droll statements and you know but he's he is unbelievably sharp and he always asks the right questions and the question that he asked there was you know this bank was 211 well 211 billion dollars in asset size uh, well above the 100 billion dollar uh you know point in which the regulators should be taking a closer look and uh they didn't stress test it they didn't you know do the tests that should be done on a bank of that size 
And the, the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, said they didn't do it because it takes them three years to get the bank into a position where they should be stress tested. But the point was, Kennedy said, well, these are what the laws say. You didn't need to stress test them. You needed to, you know, come down on them for what they did. And then, you know, he went after them for the thing that I just mentioned. You knew what they were doing wrong. You knew it and you didn't stop it. You simply told them to stop it. And when they refused to do so, you didn't do anything about it. And that's what has all of these senators upset because that's the fault of the government. The bank did a lot of things wrong and, and they, they, these guys are getting punished by it. But the government didn't do what it was supposed to do. You know, why do you have laws if you have no intention of executing the laws? That That's what, what the issue was. Um, and you can't help but agree with each one of the senators who got up and said that. I mean, the guy from Montana, whose name I don't remember, he said, why? You know, you knew what they were doing. You didn't do anything about it. Why? You know, and uh, that's something that the Federal Reserve is going to have to answer. And the answer is going to be, well, we're going to be really tough going forward. Yeah, well, they're going to talk tough, obviously. But you said in a note this morning that deeper investigations are needed into all aspects of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Well, because what surprised me was this, right? I, you know, I'm a bank analyst. I follow that bank. Uh, a few years ago, I said it was one of the best banks in the country. But in January of 2022, I wrote this report, you know, downgrading the stock, telling people to buy puts, you know, telling them to write calls against the, uh, and it's in writing. So I'm not making it up. It's all in writing. Uh, so, so, you know, we, we got out and we got out for the right reasons because I mentioned that, you know, there was, um, you know, this issue with, uh, you know, interest rates going up and they had bought a lot of, and they had purchased a lot of securities. And we, we mentioned that the nature of the business didn't shift along with the shifting in the market. You know, the, our theory that consumer tech is not where you want to be, you want to be in industrial tech. So anyway, um, you know, we, we, we were able to get out of the way. The, the fact is nobody else did. And, and the fact is that all of these other analysts right up to the end were saying that this bank was one of the best in the country, was extraordinarily well run. So on one hand, you've got the auditors going in saying, you know, this management is a number three, this holding company is not adequate. And you got all the analysts saying, this company's terrific. And what I can't figure is why, why was such a gap? Why was there such a gap? Why didn't the analysts catch on to what the regulators were saying? And why didn't the regulators at least give some indication to the analyst as to what was happening there? Uh, and it makes, you know, I, I've been doing this analytical stuff for a lot, of, a lot of decades. How can we be so wrong as a group? How can we miss, you know, the fact that, because uh, I never, you know, I said sell the stock, but but you know, to, to, to buy puts on the stock, but I, I never said the management was third rate. You know, uh, and obviously the government is saying the management was third rate. And then, you know, what I said before, the fact that these guys actually knew that they were going to fail and then robbed the bank. They took, I mean, they didn't have to go up there with guns and blow up the safe. They just took their computers and they grabbed $219 million out of the bank, which they put in their pockets. I mean, they knew when they... I, I I, I want to step in here because I, I feel like I agree that that's what the senators focus on. And, 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 you know, obviously that's catnip for anyone who 
is kind of up in arms that the government had to come in and bail out of a bank after, you know, the 2008 proclamations. And, you know, this was the, the, you know, the financial war to end all wars was the, the Dodd-Frank financial bill that would create a system where the government wouldn't have to save banks in the future. And here we are, you know, not even 15 years later, saving banks. And it's catnip to say, yes, these guys were selling stocks and going out. But as far as I've been able to ascertain, a lot of those sales were part of pre-planned 10B5, you know, blind liquidations that are part of anyone who's heavily weighted to any asset implement. And whether you agree with it or not, a lot of the the stock sales are pre-planned sales that were planned quarters and years in advance that wouldn't have any insight that the that the bank run on Silicon Valley Bank was about to happen. I mean, the story, the, the financial story of Silicon Valley Bank is actually pretty basic. You know, they have zero interest deposit that they invested in long-term bonds, basically treasury bonds, which, you know, broadly speaking are safe, that require very little collateralization behind them. And when they sold some of those bonds at the loss, because so those zero interest deposits started looking for other places to park money where they could maybe get a return instead of zero interest, Silicon Valley sold those bonds at a loss to try to raise capital. And that action sparked a panic. And it sparked a panic because a lot of their investors were interconnected through venture capitalists that were invested in all of them and startup depositors that were all in on Silicon Valley Bank, and they all left at the exact same time. But the the story here is not the the catnip story that that the shareholders were selling in advance. The story is exactly what you said. The Fed, by the way, in their stress test, it's been widely reported that they have not stress tests for rapidly rising interest rates. They stress test for rapidly declining interest rates. And so it sure seems like they were kind of had their eye on the wrong thing. And there was a funny quote out there by this, um, I think the CEO or the chairman of a Brazilian bank, uh, Pactual, who said that any junior analyst from Latin America would have been able to manage the interest rate risk better in Silicon Valley. And I think this is just more of a result of 15 years or 20 years of people, you know, my age or younger, I'm in my mid 40s, who don't have the intellectual or institutional memory that people who've been in the industry a lot longer than us had when there were rising interest rate periods. This is just the result of zero interest rate policies for decades compounded with a Fed who one arm of them doesn't seem to know or doesn't seem to know how to manage risk in a rising interest rate environment. And to your point, sure as heck doesn't know how to tell a bank what to do because it sure seems like everyone noticed this risk, at least on the regulator side and on the banker side. They knew that they had mark-to-market losses if in their holds and maturity portfolio that the bank was technically underwater. What they didn't really do is force them to raise capital early enough to prevent a bank run and communicate to their customers that a bank run would be unnecessary. And fourth, I think that one of the things that came out in the hearing was that Silicon Valley once the FDIC changed their policy and would allow you to post collateral, health ministry collateral for um, par, and Silicon Valley apparently had plenty of collateral on, on that Friday. The window in the Fed in D.C. closed at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and the bank run continued after that, and so they didn't have time to post collateral, so they ran out of money. Um, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to the story, but the idea that because some executives sold shares early on, I guarantee you, those executives would rather have retained their the, the shares that went to zero at a about you know at market value or at least Thursday's market value than you know sell a portion of them a week ahead of the collapse because 
it would be way worthwhile to them to save the bank than to let the bank collapse. So I feel like this is a red herring and just another example that our senators don't have a clue what's going on because they're going after the thing that's sexy to their audience. You know, oh, the the, the executive sold shares and, and the regular people got hosed. And that's a fun story. And it makes everyone point to the bankers as villains. But the real villain here is the Fed, for one, not knowing what it's doing and not forcing the bank to sell. And, and and sell its assets when they still had you know the ability to have positive value and two the fed rapidly raising rates knowing that some banks when you rapidly raise rates are going to go out of business because of the held to maturity rules like it's it's a basic law of nature that you can't have declining asset value while you're paying while you while you're paying market rates on the other side so i, I think this is a lot of just head 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 bobbing and weaving to avoid culpability by the senators because this is everyone's fault. It's not necessarily only the executives as much as they could have done stuff to stop it. Anyone could have stopped this. Well, I, I'm not willing to let them off the hook as easy as you are. Uh, basically, two years ago, they were told that they were doing things inappropriately uh, and they got a very low rating from the government. Uh, from the, I'll get to the government in a second. But, you know, basically, they ignored what they were told to do. Uh, they were told it three times in three sets of audits, if I understood what I heard this morning correctly, and every time they ignored it and they refused to do what they were told to do. Now, there may have been some automatic uh, sell uh, on, the, on the stock, but there was no automatic which said you don't give bonuses to people when you think the bank, you know, before the bank is taken over by the government. And they did that. And the other thing you don't do is you don't borrow $200 million from the bank, you know, weeks before, you know, the bank goes under. The, the old rules were if you wanted to borrow money from a bank, you couldn't borrow it from the bank that you worked for. You had to uh, make an agreement. Uh, you know, when I worked for the chemical bank and, and I wanted a mortgage, chemical bank sent me over to Chase because they wouldn't they wouldn't lend money to uh, you know someone who worked for them but they took 219 million dollars out I don't I don't give them I don't take these people off the hook at all I think they should be punished to the full extent of the law okay but you're dead right in terms of the uh, Federal Reserve totally blowing it totally missing their responsibility totally refusing to do what they should have done uh, but you know they they do they're doing the same thing that Silicon Valley Bank did right I mean we we've spoken multiple times in the past year on these podcasts that the Fed has you know well eight trillion in in securities which have you know uh if you will lives uh, that extend more than 10 years in 48% of the cases and in five to 10 years in 10% of the cases. And they're funding it with, you know, one day money, three day money, you know, money in the, 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 the repo market. So the Fed is as guilty as this bank is of not understanding how to do deal with rising rates on their own balance sheet. And the vast majority of banks out there, uh, we just, you know, released a report which shows that JP Morgan did it, you know, Bank of America, Bank of America did it big time, you know, uh, you know, Truist did it, which is the sixth largest bank in the country. Every bank was doing it. And the Fed to you, you are so correct in saying that the Fed totally blew it. They had a responsibility to stop it. They didn't. The stress test, as you correctly indicated, uh, the stress test, you know, said, you know, you've got to watch for diversity. 
It didn't say you've got to watch for rising interest rates in, in, uh, in on your financial assets, which again, you know, people who've been listening to this podcast know that we've been saying over and over again, you can't analyze a bank by taking a look at one side, you know, interest rates go up, so you get more for the loans, right? You got to look at what it's doing to your your assets it's destroying them you got to look what it's doing to your cost of money it's it's impacting your margins the fact that everybody decided to ignore this except this podcast <laughs> okay is <it's, it's, laughs> i think is is it's outrageous it's unbelievable I must say, I, just for our listeners, Matt's coming to us by phone today. He's on the road. Dick's in Tampa and I'm in the New York area. But that's what you've said uh, previously, Matt, that they should have hedged their long duration risk at SVB. It seems like a common sensical, a no-brainer almost. Yeah, but nobody did it. Nobody was doing it. it. As I just told you, JP Morgan wasn't doing it, you know, to the degree that you thought they were. Neither was, I mean, Bank of America is going to have to raise common equity, in my view, because they didn't do it. Truist didn't do it. The Federal Reserve didn't do it. So I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not willing to criticize them for not doing what no one else did. But um, I am willing to criticize, you know, what they did in taking money out. You can't borrow money a few weeks before the bank goes under. Let's let's be clear. The bank's the banking rules designed by the Fed allow them to do this. I mean, at, when when we when we trade treasuries at Odeon Capital, which we do, and hopefully you can call your institutional clients and call your salesperson and your treasury business with us because we'll give you a great execution. But that said, when we when we put treasuries on our balance sheet, we have to post collateral for every treasury we put on and and we use leverage, you know, not not quite as good as banks, but you know, the the leverage we're allowed to put on for 30 years, I believe we have to post 15% collateral, which means uh, you know, if it moves down uh, on a high duration bond, you could barely absorb, I think maybe one 1% move or maybe one and a half percent move before that collateral would run out and we would have to post more collateral. Um, for 10 years, I think it's closer to 5%. And for, you know, anything, anything less than two years, it's closer to one, one and a half percent, which, you know, makes sense when you look at intraday moves and, and the, the value at risk. But banks have to post 0% collateral for all that long dated treasury risk that has extremely high duration risk to interest rates and high duration moves. And so when interest rates rise and they lose 30 and 40% of their portfolio value and the Fed's sitting there with rules that allow that to happen and then their depositors notice and have a bank run, I mean, that's just kind of like water flowing downhill. When, when, when you start a bank run, history has shown that it's not easy to stop. And I'm not sure there's a bank out there except for the two big details that could survive a bank run in a, in a rapid fashion. And so, you know, the mismanagement by Silicon Valley isn't just entirely on on their asset side it's on their liability side because they thought they had a plan they went out and raised or you know, put raised in air quotes but they announced a plan to raise 2.5 billion in an offering but it wasn't closed and it wasn't fully written and, and and the investors were already spooked by the losses they took in the portfolio they sold and so it created the bank run where you know a more sophisticated executive team might have been able to handle the raising of capital in a way that didn't spook their depositors and they might have still survived. And so, look, Dick, I wasn't trying to take away the blame to the management. What I was trying to say is when they're selling, I, I just don't think it, it aligns that they had some sort of inside knowledge that the bank run was about to happen because they were incentivized to keep the bank alive. They weren't incentivized to sell before the bank run happened. And I think their yeah, mismanagement right. really came from the bank run. 
Well, well yeah, but that there was no bank run two years ago, right? And and they were judged to be uh, in, inefficient or insufficient in terms of managerial capability. But you know, what you know that that's their problem at this time. I mean, what what is kind of interesting to me is what is going to happen as a result of what's occurred here. And I think what is going to happen is uh, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC are going to tighten up their uh, supervisory, if you will, standards, number one, their um, their standards of uh, you know how they audit banks. Uh, they're going to expand the size of their uh, stress tests, not to deal with three or four issues, but to now deal with 10 or 12 issues. Uh, they're going to take banks uh, that were told they didn't have to do the stress test because their asset size were too low, they're going to have to do stress tests. Um, the banks themselves are going to tighten up on their lending because uh, they don't know whether we are going to be pushed into a recession or not. There's going to be more capital raised to go into the banking industry. The banks are going to increase their liquid assets, which means less loans, more more treasuries and other, uh, if you will, liquid securities. Um, and all of that is going to result in, in pressure on bank earnings which is going to make it very difficult for bank stocks to do very well. Interesting to hear you say all of that, Dick, because um, my question was, are other banks out there, I know we've asked this numerous times, which could um, have challenges. You mentioned community banks in the past, but you've uh, said in a recent note, you laid out um, a number of banks which might need more common equity. It's quite a long list. Well, what, what we did was we took a look at the um, amount of equity that they said they had, and then we adjusted it by the true equity that they have. And by what I mean by true equity is we mark to market all of their held to maturity securities. And surprisingly, we had to mark to market what is called their available for sale securities. In other words, what we did was we took the data which they provided to the Federal Reserve in something called the Y9 report. And we, you know, basically adjusted their equity by the overstatement that they had made in their financial statements. And when we adjusted their equity, we found that there were a number of banks that don't have the requisite amount of equity. And therefore, we argue that they need equity. So what's the complete picture here um, for investors and consumers? Uh, interest rates are not going to, I mean, we're going to see, we may see another interest rate increase or not, or they may pause. That seems the more likely scenario in the current environment. But uh, given all of that, consumers are quite stressed. We're seeing um, a risk of rising mortgage defaults, maybe some troubles in commercial real estate. And somebody noted there recently about adjustable rate mortgages that might not be an issue now, but quite a lot of um, buyers took out these arms adjustable rate mortgages um, a couple of years ago and rates have risen since. So putting all of that together, can we expect some consequences that could affect the market? Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, I've gone back on the side that uh, as a result of these two uh, bank failures, you know, Silicon Valley and uh, Signature, uh, and and I don't know if we're going to put First Republic in there or not, or whether we're going to, you know, put uh, this uh, Silvergate Bank in there. But the, the the fact of the matter is that it's it's going to cause this massive change in regulation. 
It's going to force the banks to uh, lower the amount of money that they're going to make available uh, to the economy, uh, lower the amount of money they're going to make available to consumers. And I think that does re result in a recession. I think that will happen. Um, you know, I've gone wishy-washy back and forth over the last 12 months. We're going to be in a recession. We're not going to be in a recession. We're going to be in a recession. Now I'm back in the, I'm going to be, we're, we're going to be in a recession camp. Um, but again, I, I don't think it's going to be a devastatingly harsh recession. But I think the Federal Reserve needs a recession to square away its balance sheet. In other words, if it keeps interest rates high at the moment, and maybe picks them up a couple more times, which I think is highly likely, uh, they'll drive us into a recession. They drive us into a recession, long interest rates will come down, long interest rates come down, then the value of the securities that they hold will go up, they will no longer have negative equity, they can sell those securities, pay down the short-term debt, so they need a recession. And I think they're going to create one to solve their problem. Because if they don't create one and they don't solve their problem, they're not going to have the ability to assist the economy in future periods. And it's going to be painful and there's going to be screams from everywhere. But I don't, I don't see how they can solve the problem of their own balance sheet, which is the same as Silicon Valley's balance sheet. I don't see how they can solve that problem without driving a recession. I still am curious, though. I'm, I'm, you know, we talk about this a lot on the Fed's negative negative equity in the, in the in their losses and i still do not understand them is why does it matter if they can just print their money i mean i get that it, it looks bad and the appearance is bad but they're not silicon valley bank silicon valley bank ran out of money because there was a bank run and there's no source of capital and they couldn't get the money and they had to be seized if the federal reserve runs out of money they just print it no they can't that's the point I mean, I haven't been able to convince you of it, but if you take a look <laughs> at the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, all right, 20 years ago, 92% of all of the funding that they got, they got from printing money, all right? And as a result of that, they took that 92% of, of their assets, uh, of their funding, and they bought treasuries. That was 88% of their assets. The treasuries that they bought paid interest to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve took that money and gave it back to the government because the Federal Reserve, the government, you know, takes 95% of the uh, profits of the Federal Reserve every year. Sometimes they take as much as 100% of the profit. And it was a beautiful system, right? And, and you know, they could print money, presumably stimulate the economy because they didn't print a, a large amount of it. They buy the treasuries, Treasuries pay them interest. They give the interest back to the government. So the government is not paying interest on the treasuries that, that, you know, were purchased as a result of the Fed printing money. All right. Today, only 26% of the uh, funding of the Fed comes from printed money. So if they could print money, why is it only 26%? Where are they getting the rest of that money? They're going to I mean, the open market. They're borrowing it from in the in the re reverse repo market. They're borrowing it, you know, from the banks through bank deposits, and they paid the bank for the first time ever in 2008. They paid the banks, you know, interest on those deposits just to make sure that they got them. So the net effect yeah. is, if they could have printed money, they would have done it. They can't. So what is the end game? I mean, because the end 
if, if the end game is the destruction of the bank the same way the Silicon Valley end is, we're talking about the end of the Fed and the end of the monetary system. I mean, is that the end game or is it something a lot less dire? Or no, the end game is what, that where we have a bankrupt company or bankrupt country. Yeah, the, the end game is what I, what, I, what I said. The end game is they've got to run a recession. They've got to drive. Um, uh, they've got to drive interest rates down. Uh, they they they've got to run the recession. They've got to drive interest rates down. They've got to shrink their balance sheet. They've got to get rid of all of this borrowed money, uh, and they can't do it if they continue to allow the economy to rise rapidly. They, it can't be done. So so the net effect is the end game is a recession, shrinking the size of the balance sheet paying down the short-term debt and and doing it because you're able to sell off the securities because now you can make a profit selling the securities that you own. I think that's the end game. The other end game is depression. My analogy is that the Fed is driving down the highway at 70 miles an hour. Right. The lack of of ability to print money and control interest rates, if it's out of control, is it akin to running out of gas or is it akin to the steering wheel coming off and you're still going 70 miles an hour? It's akin to the steering wheel coming off and you're going 70 miles an hour. If, if they decide so you're going catastrophe. Yeah. In other words, if they're going to print another trillion, let's assume they print a tr- another trillion dollars, right? Let's make that assumption. If they print another trillion dollars, they will drive inflation up and it will not go down. So they will it will be counterproductive. They won't get the result that they want. The result that they want is for inflation to come down and interest rates to come down. By printing another trillion dollars, they're not getting that result. Now, I mean, the, the money supply numbers will be out tonight, you know, to show where where they stand. But the money supply numbers that came out a month ago showed that they were shrinking the money supply. They were they were putting their foot as hard on the brake as they could, you know, to slow down the whole process. Uh, but but basically, um, that you know that didn't, uh, you know, I think that's what they're going to continue to do. And if they if they don't do it, if they decide, okay, you know, politicians are going crazy. Unemployment is now five and a half percent, headed to six percent. You know, we're going to print money. It won't work. It won't work because all they'll do okay. is increase inflation. I think the end game. And maybe I'll, I'll step away from my analogies, but I think the end game is much more Japanese style, where you end up printing money to create yield curve control. They'll let inflation go hot for a while because that's the best way to inflate our way out of our debt problem. But in the in the interim, they're going to be the buyer of last resort and and expand their balance sheet to impose yield curve control because the federal government can't absorb. The higher interest rates, the banking system can't absorb the higher interest rates, and the housing system can't absorb the higher interest rates. So the Fed's going to have to take it on the balance sheet, and they'll do it through coordinated recession slash stagflation, and by yield curve control, and by buying pretty much every asset product out there. And the real risk to that is that the dollar collapses because the world sees that the emperor has no clothes. Yeah, well... I think that will be the risk. I think that will be the reason. Also, unfortunately, quite. Yeah, because, a, a, um, you're not. You're not becoming the next Doctor Doom here, Matt. I'm not trying to. I'm just trying. To, <laughs> I, I feel like they're 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 long ways between a rock and a hard place because the economy to get inflation under. And by the way, like let's just take a step back. And I've been saying this for a long time, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. Is that the Congress could step up here and and really help the Fed out? And instead, they've at least under the Biden administration, and basically, you know, depending on when you want to start it, it started under George Bush or under Barack Obama or under under Trump. 
but this money printing cycle does not help the Fed, you know, the, the dual mandate because you have the Congress printing money like a, a drunken sailor, no offense to sailors, and the Fed is out there having to control inflation using their one tool, which is interest rate, and then they invented a second tool, quantitative easing, where they buy bonds, but they basically have two blunt tools where a scalpel, if you had a good Congress that could come in and slow down the overheated economy where it really is overheated, which is kind of on the you know higher higher end consumer and the higher end, you know, they could raise taxes, they could um, uh, do other things that would have immediate effect on the economy directly to the, to the, you know, to the people's wallets. Whereas the Fed basically has a lever that's three or four degrees removed because they raise interest rates, which harms banks, which slows down lending, which lowers, you know, consumer optimism, which then lowers spending. So like fourth or fifth derivative effect is the economy slows. Whereas I think the Congress could immediately kill the con- the economy, but obviously they don't want to because they want to get reelected and also there's no leaders there. But you know, yeah, well, I, I agree with you 100% people. there. One of the things you hear commentators bring up a lot uh, in the past couple of weeks with the collapse of SVB and the other implosions was is the whole moral hazard aspect of this. But the, the bigger question is, is this undermining all these bailouts? the free market in America? Is it undermining capitalism? As somebody has said, some famous uh, economist, uh, capitalism without failure is like religion without sin. I mean, the banks, consumers, uh, the, the, the the body politic, if, if you will, everybody expects bailouts for everything now. It just continue. Nobody has the appetite to suck it up and, and go through some period of austerity, which doesn't have to be that severe. Well, you hope not. But I mean, I think Matt's last point was the critical point, you know, that, uh, you know, the Fed doesn't have that many tools. The Fed cannot do everything that, uh, you know, the people on television think it can do. It can do a very limited number of things. And it's the Congress's responsibility to get the budget under control. Uh, and, and, you know, if that means raising taxes, they got to do it that way. If it means reducing expenses, they got to do it that way. But if they don't get the budget under control, if they don't get this country back to a position of uh, stability, you know, in terms of financing itself, then, you know, the Fed is going to constantly be, you know, in this position of knowing uh, at some point they may have to, you know, buy a whole bunch of uh, debt, you know, which they're going to fund who knows how. how. But the point is, um, Matt's right, the Congress has got to step up, they've got to get it under control, you know, and and they're not doing that. And they won't do that until there is one incredible crisis. Let's be honest, they called the biggest money printing bill of this administration the Inflation Reduction Act. And almost every paper I've read, including I think JP Morgan came out with one a couple of days ago, you know, talked about how inflationary this Inflation Reduction Act will be and how dramatically understated the amount of spending that was in there because of unlimited um, uh, rebates and unlimited, you know, environmental incentives for companies to come in. And so as much as they guesstimated how much they'd be spending on these rebates, I, I believe they estimated that the, the, the estimate was around $300 billion for the IRA, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, and that J.P. Morgan, I think, estimated it closer to $1.2 trillion, and that was just like one EV credit analysis that was understated by almost a trillion dollars. So it, it's insanity that we're going to have the belief that this president or this legislature 
will come through with an, an act that actually helps reducing inflation. But man, we sure could use it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you a thousand percent. I mean, that that basically is the key issue. Uh, Congress has got to show a willingness to accept a period of uh, stringency in order to get their budget in place. That allow the Fed to get their budget in place, and that will allow us to then take uh, another ten years of, of growth, and, and, and you know, but if they're going to keep spending and printing and and doing all the things that they've been doing, you know, we are in that car going seventy miles an hour without brakes or steering wheel. And Matt just mentioned there the threat to the U.S. dollar. We've spoken about that on the podcast repeatedly. We hope it doesn't happen, um, but it could. Um, you see the way China and Saudi Arabia and Russia and Iran are brokering deals. Uh, we may not, they could chip away at it um, ever so slightly, but you do it enough times and uh, you don't have a, a strong dollar anymore. Well, you know, I, as you know, I believe that uh, the dollar will no longer be the only global reserve currency. Uh, I think there'll be multiple global reserve currencies uh, because, you know, you can't stop the power of China. The, 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 you know, they, they've got, you know, this enormous population. They've got the ability to produce goods that the population can consume. They don't need the outside world to the degree that all of a sudden we do. Uh, they, they've, they've got control of uh, their energy resources. They've now got Russia and Saudi Arabia competing to sell them oil at below market prices. They have control of the rare earths. They got control. They, they're, ones, they're the ones who produce the Apple telephone, not Apple. I mean, so, so basically, you know, we can't let that continue. Right? They, went to, they went to Moscow. They didn't go to Moscow to say, you know, we love the United States. We want to help the United States. They went to Moscow to try and tamp down Putin as, as best I can understand it. You know, they, they didn't. Well, we'll see if they tamp down Putin or not, because they, that was only last week. But th their power is growing enormously, financially, uh, militarily, um, and you know, and you know, throughout the world with trade, uh, and with with uh, lending, um, and all we're doing is uh, you know fighting about uh, things that don't, just don't really matter. They, they, we've got to do fundamental changes in our economy to do what Matt said. We're not doing it. They are taking care of their problems, so we are at risk. Meanwhile, the U.S. economy is still getting through all this this latest financial crisis. Housing is strong in the east. It's down on the west coast. Um, the latest consumer sentiment report showed a, an uptick, which I find kind of hard to understand, given what some of the CEOs of the retail sector are saying and what they see with their own on the floor. But you don't feel there's no palpable sense of an imminent recession and that we could muddy through all of this for the next couple of months and maybe things will be fine. Maybe they will. But, uh, you know, if, if uh, we're seeing all that strength, why isn't it showing up in bank loans? In other words, why are bank loans going down? you know, uh, are not growing as fast in the, well, they're actually going down in the commercial market, uh, not growing as fast in autos, not growing as fast as housing, reducing re rapidly the, the growth that they're having in credit cards. If, you know, if everything is, you know, really good, wh why is that happening? And it's happening because it isn't that good. <laughs> you know, United States economy is not growing at three to four percent in real terms, which is what should be a minimal expectation for the economy. It's grown and it hasn't grown at that rate for years. Um, 
So I, I wouldn't say everything is just going along just great. It's, it, it, it may be growing along just great in certain segments of the uh, economy, but not for the economy overall. It doesn't look that way. Yeah, I, I, you make a great point, which is why I think the media doesn't telegraph really what's going on. You have to talk to the analysts or look at the reports or, as you said, you know, bank lending and to get a real understanding. And, uh, you know, the U.S. economy is so divided between what you see in the metropolitan areas and then you go to flyover country and it's like getting closer to third world conditions. Hey, hey, hey. I'm in, I don't think we're there. <laughs> we're not, we're not and, in the third world. And, and, then, and, and like, you know, the report you just cited, you know, I had to have a little bit of a chuckle over it because I'm a homeowner on the East Coast and I'm a homeowner in what you call a third world conditions flyover country. And the report said that in the last year, I think the West had on average had home price declines less than 1% and, and the East Coast, I think, had gains of 3 or 4%. And, you know, they're just kind of talking about how that's very unique in, in housing history. But what they didn't show is if they put that on a three-year chart, the, the homes in the West Coast are up something like 40% over the last three years and down 1% over one year, or the homes on the East Coast are only up 10% over the last three years, including 3% last year. So, it, you know, it's, it's just one of those things with statistics that you can create any damned lie you want if you can frame it properly. Yeah, well, that's true. Of course, uh, the housing boom in San Francisco was driven by the tech sector. I mean, the median price there I saw was over a million uh, at its high, which was extraordinary. Yeah, and, and San Francisco is, you know, home from home of San Francisco. I mean, they're, they're, they have a lot of leadership problems there that hopefully don't spread to the rest of the country. But the surrounding <laughs> bedroom communities around San Francisco are booming. I mean, the reason San Francisco is having year on year price declines is because everyone's fleeing to the suburbs where where there's not as much of crime and threats of violence. And so I, I don't know that you can paint a broad picture on that yet. I still think the biggest reason housing prices are holding up and will hold up for the long run is one lack of inventory. But the biggest one, and I've said it a lot, is if you own a house and you have a 2% fixed rate mortgage, why on earth would you move? You would move heaven and earth to not move and to not have to sell your house because the uh, price of house you can afford and the quality of house you can afford for the same monthly payment, same down payment, is much less and so you're better off staying where you are and i think that's going to lead to a lack of supply and lack of turnover and lack of velocity just like there's money velocity when we look at m2 and talk about how that's growing through the, the velocity housing velocity is also there when there's no turnover it's hard for prices to move one rapidly one direction or not in 2008 you had a dark a large supply of, of vacant houses owned by people who did not reside there that were underwater and were forced sellers which led to a nationwide but we don't have that same problem this time. No, I agree. I don't think I don't think the economy is in terrible shape. I mean, I think the economy is just not growing at the at its capacity. That that's a lot bit a lot different from saying that it's slinking into uh, you know uh, you know, really bad economic situation. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we will resolve our financial problems over the next uh, 12, 18 months. Um, I think the Fed will do what I, what I suggested it might do. And I think that we will see that the banking system has resolved its problems. And I think that we will see that we're in the middle of uh, reindustrialization. I was speaking to a, an analyst for about a, a, an hour today about uh, the industrialization of America. And he said, uh, he follows, you know, industrial stocks, and he said, we're seeing it everywhere. It's occurring everywhere. We're seeing this revival. So, you know, we're in a short-term problem, if you think a year is short-term. And then I think we're 
headed for what we've been saying week after week, reindustrialization, growth, you know, resurrection of strength in the U.S. economy. I think all that's ahead of us. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not pessimistic about that. America has always that um, great untapped potential. And to your point, um, in industrialization or reindustrialization, there's lots of uh, labor out there. And I don't mean to, you know, denigrate any parts of America. When I used the term third world, I was just talking about, you know, <laughs> inlands, uh, the, 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 um, the former Rust Belt, if you will, and they're areas that need jobs. Well, Fair enough. I mean, I, 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 I would also say, though, if you look across the country, it seems to me, that the, the flyover states, by and large, have lower unemployment and greater financial stability, and they don't have the pension problems or the union problems mm. or the budget problems that the, the coastal states have. I mean, you look at, like, I say coastal states, I mean, I really mean New York, you know, the East Coast and California, excluding uh, Florida. But, but you know, New York has something like twice the budget, um, state budget that Florida has on extremely high income taxes and extremely high property taxes and extremely high um, cost of living index. And they have about the same population as Florida, but spends twice as much as the state. You know that that leads to basically a, a departure of people and departure of capital and departure of, of uh, prosperity. And and you know you can see that in the census reports when you look at the wages that have left um, high cost states to low cost states. Um, you know they're losing tens of billions of dollars a year of W two income just based on IRS data from people moving and often moving with their feet. And so. I, I look at America as the, the solution is going to come from the middle. But re mm. regardless, I, I want to bring up the uh, this phrase that you hear a lot in, in the popular media, which is called a Minsky moment. Yeah. And, you know, a Minsky moment is when they say it's a, a major collapse at the end of a growth cycle. And I just want to talk a little bit about how that, um, that uh, Minsky moment is kind of derived from stability creating instability. Because... What happens is when growth is assured, when growth looks great, when everything looks hunky-dory, when inflation looks good, the, the urge for anyone who's kind of optimistic about the future, you know, in, in business and, and has capacity to borrow, the urge is to borrow and take on debt because it looks safe. It looks like growth is assured. It looks like prosperity mm -hmm. is assured. And that actually leads to fragility because when interest rates rise and you're in a high debt, you, know, you went from low debt to high debt in a low interest rate environment to a high interest rate environment, it can collapse really quickly on you. And and that's where we are in this cycle is that things are fragile, stuff's starting to break. Um, John, you're saying like things feel hunky-dory and I agree with you, life is pretty good right now. It felt that way in 2007, you know, even in early 2008, it felt that way. So, you know, then you have your Minsky moment and things break and once start, things start breaking, you know, you don't know where the next domino is to fall. And I think that was what really scared the regulators on saving Silicon Valley, even though they had pledged, you know, that this type of rescue would never be necessary was, it looked like on that weekend that every bank that wasn't too big to fail was going to fail. And if they didn't save Silicon Valley Bank and show, hey, we're still here, we're still manning the, you know, manning the, the, the plane and we're going to make sure this plane lands. If you didn't have that, then you would have had hundreds of regional banks facing their Minsky moments all at once and it would have been a disaster. And so it seems to me that the, the Minsky moment was real in the sense that the, the, the stability is what bred the instability at Silicon Valley Bank. And I think yeah, that's what's really scary about the rest of the economy.
Yeah, and that's the risk that we're facing right now. And that's the risk that I think we have to, uh, you know, alleviate by going through a, a, a slowdown, a recession, and then, you know, starting back up again. We, we, we've got to sop up the excess, the excess, uh, you know, cash and, and liquidity in the economy and put it to use in a productive fashion. And, and that, the Minsky moments do end, but they they aren't they are very unpleasant, and I think we're rushing towards one right now. Uh, quickly, uh, Dick, any message in all of that wisdom to investors? Well, you know, our our theme for the last 12, 18 months has been to you know not charge at the markets, but to charge at you know bank preferred stock because what we're looking for is some place to put money where you can get a reasonably a reasonably good return where the risk is is relatively low i would say extremely low and then you know go through this period of stress you'll be getting you know your dividends paid on the preferred stocks that you bought in the banks uh you you won't see any major erosion in the value of your you know securities and then you know once we get through this period and we come out you know, as I say, in, in the middle of 2024, switch from these bank preferreds into common stock. But but at the moment, don't don't be a hero. Don't go charging into common stock. You know, you, t take a very uh, conservative approach to the use of your money. And I think bank preferreds are that. You're not going to lose money uh, if you stick with a JP Morgan. Not, not that we're recommending it, that we can't do that. But, you know, I, I don't see how you're going to lose a lot of money if you own JP Morgan preferred stock. That's what we've been saying for the last 12 months, and, and we're sticking with that argument at the moment. Dick and Matt, we're at a time we had a great conversation about SVB and the Senate hearings and the economy and much more. And we will be back next week for episode 63. Until then, take care. Thank you for those insights earlier, Dick. And for our listeners, it's important to understand that as of today's recording date, March 28th, 2023, neither Dick nor any member of his household have a financial interest in the debt or equity or preferred securities of any of the banks and companies referred to on this podcast and have not received any compensation from these banks and companies in the past 12 months. In addition, Odeon has not received any compensation from these banks and companies, and these banks and companies are not investment banking clients of the firm. Dick's written reports on any of these banks and companies he covers are available to institutional customers of Odeon at insight.odeoncap.com and additional important disclosures are available to the public generally at odeoncap.com forward slash legal under the research disclosures tab. All investing involves risk and you should consider those risks and your personal financial objectives before making investment decisions. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part.
Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.